Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. I'm Kurt Campbell. I'm thrilled to be joined by a good friend, Robert Zellick, one of the world's most distinguished authorities on the global economy, international finance, and foreign policy. Many of you know a wonderful book by Walter Isaacson called The Wise Men. Uh, you see it has these pictures, black and white, from the 1940s, and you think of that group as being a bygone era. But I'm here to tell you that we're joined by a more contemporary version of the wise men, Bob Zellick. For those of us who work in foreign policy and national security, we often look at Bob and we try to model our experience, our careers, after the remarkable things that he's done at the White House at the State Department, at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, at the World Bank and the Treasury, everywhere. Bob has had a remarkable experience, both in the public and private sector. He is the author of a wonderful new book, America in the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. We're going to promote it shamelessly today, and we're going to hear Bob talk about uh, his reasons for writing the book and what he hopes to convey in it. Bob, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Well, Kurt, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, as people who know the English language well, there's a slight distinction between wise men and wise guys, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we'll try to aspire to the standard you set. All right. So, Bob, thank you. So, you're one of the busiest guys I know. You're on tremendous boards globally. You do a variety of different things. You're very public-minded and public-spirited. Hardly a week goes by that you don't write a really cutting-edge piece in the Wall Street Journal or one of the big national dailies about how to interpret the world. It takes a lot to sit down and write a book, particularly a book that's not just, you know, kind of off the top of your head. This is deeply researched. Why did you decide to do it? Well, Kurt, you're, you're an author too, so you know the effort it takes. I, I guess for me, when, when I was in public service, I always drew on history as I thought about problems. And I wanted to encourage others to think about policy that way, and particularly perhaps some of the, the next generation. So people at this event may recall Henry Kissinger wrote a book titled Diplomacy, where he used history to talk about foreign policy in the mid-90s. And I enjoyed the book, but I always had a sense that the perspective he reflected was of European real politics. And so I had the idea of trying to write something that would draw some of the American experience and, and ideas from American history. And the approach I took to make it more readable for people was to, to focus on people. So it's, in some ways, it's a multiple biography, particular episodes uh, to tell it in a story fashion, and particularly this emphasis on practical problem solving. So what I noticed is a lot of university courses on foreign policy now tend to have uh, kind of more of an international relations theory approach. And I don't know your experience, but when it came time to sitting and deal with practical issues, it was kind of of a, a, a limited use. So in some ways, I designed the book as a series of historical case studies where I try to explain what happened, but also offer my assessments. And then you know, there's a, you can't write something like this unless you enjoy the subject. And I always enjoyed diplomatic history, but it is somewhat faded in the university community, in part for the good reason people brought in uh, underappreciated actors and, and, uh, and ideas. But I think we've lost something. Fred Logoval, who just came out with a biography on JFK, wrote a set piece saying, you know, why have we stopped teaching political history? 
And then in particular, when I worked with younger colleagues in those various jobs you mentioned, I used to torture them by asking historical questions because I had no idea of their background. And I noticed that when they did have a sense of history, it often came from 1945 on. So I in part wanted to talk about the first 150 years because I think there's some very interesting sort of people and episodes that might even be more applicable today than at times in the Cold War. Bob, that's a great answer. And I'm, I'm struck too, I, I came from academia like you. I, I taught at the Kennedy School and at Harvard. And you look at some of the kids who are coming up now from a political science background, and they're taught in deeply theoretical, often quantitative, or other aspects of how to interpret global politics. And I, sometimes I wonder how relevant those experiences are to some of the challenges that we face. And I agree with you that you know, I too, as an undergraduate and spent at, at Oxford quite a bit of time thinking about diplomatic history, it is kind of a lost art. The great diplomatic historians of the past are, are really more in the past than they are in the contemporary environment. I, I want to ask you, I try to read all your stuff carefully, and I'm wondering, you know, if there are other reasons why you decided to write this book. Like, you know, if you're discomforted with where we are today, sometimes I find myself, I, I read a lot about the Second World War and, and Churchill, and I, I, I find that to be inspiring during a period where, you know, it's, it's easily to be discouraged. And I wondered if part of what drove you backwards was to sort of reconsider a world that, you know, I'm not sure we're going to experience very much in terms of the United States playing this intrepid role on the global stage. How do you, how do you respond to that, Bob? Well, that's an interesting insight. Um, it, my purpose was a little different. I'd, I'd had the idea of this book in mind uh, since the 90s, in part because of the interest in, in diplomatic history. I'd actually had, had started in the 90s before going into government and, and other service for over a decade. But there's no doubt that after 2016, you know, in some ways, I figured it may be easier to spend time with dead people than alive ones. They don't fight back, right? So, so <laughs> part of it was this the enjoyment. It made a sense that while, as you kindly said, I try to comment on current policy, I wanted to try to leave something that would have a longer life to it and sort of might be of use to people. However, where your observation hits a, a chord is I've noticed that some of the people who've read the book <laughs> have a sense that it leaves them with a slightly better feeling because they sort of see the streams of time and kind of how people dealt with problems and some of the other challenges. And I suppose if I've been able to help people feel a little better, that's not so bad either. Yeah, it's a good point, Bob. I've only read parts of it to confess, but we've ordered them, so we're, we're first in line. So I'll, I just want to make that point. You talked about Kissinger's book. The, the book that this reminds me of, I, I like diplomacy, but you know he's written so much. But I felt that parts of the book, the parts that I looked at, were attempts to, to get us motivated to think about what can be applied potentially going forward. I, I know it's backward looking, but there is a little bit about how to resurrect elements of American purpose and power on the global stage. So the book that it reminded me of was actually not diplomacy. It reminded me of A World Restored, which is Kissinger's first book, his undergraduate thesis, which was essentially about efforts by Metternich to try to resurrect what was left of the fading era that he inherited, sort of 
before ultimate collapse, how to resurrect the concert of Europe. I, I wonder, I don't want to put you on the spot, Bob, but when you look at the predicament that we are in, do you think it's going to be possible for us to resurrect, even though, look, you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat, but we're closer together in terms of how we see the world and what we think is important than some of the issues that we've grappled with more recently. Do you think it's going to be possible to resurrect a more consistent, identifiable American approach that animated the last period of Pax Americana going forward? Or is this something that people are going to be writing about, that this was the juncture point in which we now depart into something new and different? Yeah, very good question. I, you know, while I, while I wrote a history, I certainly had in mind that these ideas could be applied in today and, and, and in the future. And, um, and in fact, you know, I, I didn't hammer people with it in the stories, but there's certainly lots of seeds and, and ideas there. I mean, just to give you one, you know, I, I talk about the Washington Naval Conference of 1921-22, yeah. which many people look traditionally as sort of failed effort at naval arms control. But it's very important to understand what Charles Evans Hughes, the environment he was facing domestically, and critically, the link to the regional security agenda in Northeast Asia. Well, you ask yourself. Are you really going to be able to deal with nuclear proliferation in North Korea without putting it in a regional security context? Or frankly, I think this is some of the debate that you you had uh, with with Iran and with the Iranian nuclear deal. So I try in many ways to kind of plant the the re-raise ideas, whether they're uh, about trade, whether they're about international law. There's some core traditions that I sort of pull back on. And, and one of them is the need for public support, including congressional support. And here, it's an interesting little factoid, but in October of 1945, so right after the month after Japan surrenders, as you know, Gallup does a poll and it suggests that Americans consider, 7% of Americans consider international affairs to be vitally important. So, and in the next year, it, it rises all the way up to 14 you know, so, so, so Truman, this is 1945-46, part of the challenge that what that anecdote is to explain is the nature of leaders and how they sort of set the agenda, how they connect it with the public side. I talk about relations of alliances and trade in North America and a larger purpose and some of the traditions. But to give you a little flavor for today, for, you know, I think if Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden's elected, he's going to have a big domestic agenda. And he's going to have, you know, pandemics and biological security. He's going to have environmental climate issues. He's got inclusive economic growth. He's got sort of racism issues. Uh, he's got immigration issues. I sketched in a little piece on Foreign Affairs Online recently, kind of how you could leverage those into a international agenda, rebuilding alliances, and then facing the two big questions, China and the future of free societies. So I think there's a lot of connectivity here, but, you know, part of it is, is the challenge of, of how people will get it done or whether they see connecting the dots. So the book has what I think are efforts to explain how problems are connected with bigger goals. But there's also a lot of interesting little insights about, as you know, kind of how you conduct diplomacy, the practical work of it.
Yeah, what I liked was two things. So people, you know, you and I have both done, you more, but we've both done diplomacy and there are elements to it. You know, it's not going to cocktail parties and going around and, you know, in fancy dress. It's a much more complicated endeavor. And what I liked about this was that it, it really gives you a sense of the challenges that individuals face when they're out there on the front lines. It reminded a little, little bit of this, this book that Bob Putnam wrote many years ago called The Two-Level Game Theory, in which, which is you describe in this book, which is that there are profound driving domestic factors that animate these, these issues are not somehow off separate, you know, kind of, you know, it, it's not an effete kind of, you know, un hinge set of issues. They're deeply plugged into American domestic politics. And I think that's a real service. All right, Bob, to dive into the book, you have some great anecdotes, some wonderful examples of people out there on the front lines, but you also talk about what you describe as you look back kind of in in technicolor at the American experience, these five traditions of American foreign policy. And I think for our listeners, that will help them understand what your theoretical, what your, you know, overarching approach is for how to understand some of these various approaches to global politics. So the first is North America, which from a historical perspective of the 19th century or 18th century should be very obvious. One of Kissinger's complaints is he said America didn't have a foreign policy in the 19th century. Well, he kind of ignores you know, one of the only countries that managed to dominate a continent against the French, the British, the Spanish, as well as Russia, as well as indigenous peoples. But I try to bring that up to date. Uh, obviously, you not only have events in the 20th century, we almost go to war again with Mexico, the Zimmerman telegram where the Germans try to bring Mexico into the, the World War I against us, the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I found this speech by Ronald Reagan in 1979, as he's launching his campaign, you can't imagine someone doing this today, saying in a campaign speech, he said, it's time that we start to think about uh, our nearest neighbors, no longer think of Mexico and Canada as foreigners. Well, that's a slightly different perspective than we've had sort of the past four years. But the logic there is seeing the United States, not only with issues of concern to the public, environmentalism, immigration, crime, economics, but also North America as a continental base, so in its larger strategic terms. A second one is, is trade, technology, and, and transnationalism. And there, from the very start, I'm trying to emphasize that Americans saw trade as more than a matter of economic efficiency. It was America's relations with the world. Recall, this is a world of mercantilism and government-controlled trade. So opening the door for private sector actors, as you know, has been critical as how America engages the world. And I come back to the technology piece in a chapter about a man named Ben Eber Bush, because I think science policy will be increasingly important. Then I focus on alliances where, as you know, for the first 150 years, America tried to stay away from alliances because of Washington and Jefferson's sort of cautions. They're really trying to stay away from European balance of power politics. And in a sense, much of American foreign policy was how to engage internationally without alliances. Then quite accidentally, from 47 to 49, we create a new alliance system, and that dominates the next 70 years. And the question today is, what's the extent of it? What of security guarantees and, and the economic relations? Then I talk about the role of, of that we've touched on, Congress and public support. And here, I, I not only want to draw the point that you and I have sort of just pulled out, 
but also the key role that a person like Senator Vandenberg played in 47, 49, or in our era, you know, people like McCain or Luger or Nunn, and maybe trying to encourage a future generation, because I think it's important for a successful foreign policy. And then finally, I close with the notion of America's purpose. And here, I'm not talking about exceptionalism, which obviously gnashes the teeth of some countries abroad. What I'm trying to draw out is best epitomized by, for people who still carry a wallet, someday take out a dollar bill and look at the back and you'll see the great seal of the United States, perhaps never really focused on it very much. You only focused on the number in the corner. And, and you'll see this unfinished pyramid that has the eye of providence above it and below it, novus order seclorum, new order of the ages. So the point is from the very start, Americans were thinking about their country in a bigger picture. Now, my thesis is the notion of that purpose changes. At first, it's simply to preserve a republic in a world of empires, then it's to preserve the union. Teddy Roosevelt engages in sort of a balance of power logic. For Woodrow Wilson, it's to make the world safe for democracy, not necessarily make everybody into democracies. You have FDR's Four Freedoms, leader of the free world in the Cold War, Clinton's indispensable sort of country or nation. And I would argue that for the future today, Americans will have to have a sense of where is that larger purpose? And as I look back on in history, it has three components. One is the context. You know, are you trying to defend democracy and it's protected? Are you trying to expand it? A second is sort of your, in general, there's a goal for, for freedom and expansion of liberty. And then third is the public support. And finding that combination, I think, has always been a challenge in American foreign policy. Bob, that's a great answer. One of the things that you weave throughout the book is that this connectivity between American purpose and trade and how challenging that has been for explaining, promulgating the American trade agenda on the global stage. One of the things that we've had some previous speakers on, and they've made the argument that we need to do better in, quote, quote, packaging and selling why trade is good, why people don't understand how, you know, it creates prosperity. And yes, there might be a few losers, but, you know, overall on balance, it's been a net plus for the American people. I'd like you to just comment on that generally. Do you think that this is a marketing issue? Do you think it's a question of we haven't had effective retraining programs? Do you think that in a global sense that that we've misunderstood the nature of certain kinds of trade competition against us that is unfair and we need to rebalance the portfolio? How do you, as you think about given your role at USTR, all the things that you write, how do you make the case going forward? Because I'm finding uh, as a Democrat, I, I'll be the first to tell you that in my meetings with friends, I it's often quiet after I talk and explain why, you know, certain things about trade are good. It's it's not comfortable. And in fact, the the platforms of both major political parties right now are at best ambivalent about trade. What how do you how do you go forward here, Bob? What's the agenda that you would recommend? So Douglas Irwin wrote the sort of classical American trade history at, at Dartmouth. And what he identifies is there's sort of three periods. There's sort of revenue raising. And, and many Americans will not even know that 
the customs revenues provided 90% of America's, the federal government's income up to the Civil War. And so at the time of Alexander Hamilton, one reason he wanted to avoid all those conflicts was he wouldn't be able to make the money uh, that he needed to pay for the bonds and, and finance the government debt and finance the government, or for that matter, buy Louisiana. Then there's the period of sort of restriction. And, and then from really in the 20th century, there's kind of a movement to reciprocity. And the question is, how do we define reciprocity and kind of how do we consider it fair? I draw attention to the Smoot-Hawley Bill of 1930 and the creation under Cordell Hull of the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act, which was a huge shift, as you know, to shift authority to the executive branch to negotiate trade deals, moving away from setting individual tariffs to kind of a larger trade policy. But again, to give people a flavor of the political challenge that you encountered has always been around, I share this little anecdote that Will Clayton, who was trying to create the new GATT in 1947, has to come all the way back from Geneva. He's negotiating at that time, I think, with 23 economies because Congress had just passed the 50% wolf tariff. And the Australian said, if the president signs the bill, we're dropping out. And then Britain said, well, you know, as the leader of the Commonwealth, we'll drop out. And then the rest of the Europeans said, well, if Britain's not around, what do we get out of this? So Truman gives Clayton 15 minutes and he gives the Secretary of Agriculture 15 minutes. And we both in many meetings like this. So Clayton makes the case on the recovery of the international economy, how you have to let this gap thing go forward. The Secretary of Agriculture says, Mr. President, you'll lose up to seven states in 1948. Well, Truman the next day decides to veto the bill and actually give authority to cut the wool tariff. And for those who don't recall their history, he actually did win the 1948 election. So my point of this is that it's been around for a while. Now, to come to today, clearly, one of the challenges is to help people adapt, adjust to change. You know, we can debate, I think much of this change was due to technology and other factors, but you're going to have a hard time maintaining public support unless you have effective mechanisms uh, to do that. But also, you always have to keep thinking how you're going to kind of build the political support going forward. And what's interesting about your comment, Kurt, is if you, if you look at the most recent Chicago Council on Global Affairs study, this American support for trade is actually in the 70s and 80s, but it's a generalized support as opposed mm-hmm. to particulars. And the, the Democratic voters are now much more pro-trade. Yeah. And, and in part, I think this is anti-Trump, but I also think it's probably younger people in a sense of connectivity. So I think that the interesting, if Biden wins, the, the USTR appointment will be quite important because if the person basically just follows the political handlers, they won't do much of anything. However, could you put something together with a different approach, more digital trade, sort of environmental issues, maybe even connected with carbon taxes, sort of healthcare policies? Could you start to put together a different types of coalition? And in some ways, you know, for, for the pro-trade community, the, the Trump agenda has been a blessing because you've seen what has he accomplished? He's lost a bunch of jobs through trade. He has higher tariffs. And yet, the trade deficit has gone up. Our trade deficit with China hasn't changed. So where's the big win here? So, but as the, the key point I think you're making, Kurt, is, is that somebody needs a combined policy and, and political agenda to move this forward. And as you and I know, the guys who run elections and have to get things through the Congress are always wary of the trade topics. But I think, frankly, you know, the international experience would show you know, if, you're, if the United States is going to play a major role in the world, you encounter this. I remember Secretary Clinton said this to me. Secretary Powell said it to me. Most countries want to talk about trade rather than the traditional foreign yeah. policy 
security agenda. And, and it's also an important part of kind of, you know, if we think about digital standards, technology issues, what we've been missing the past four years is the U.S. used to, in a sense, prod the agenda because of our cutting edge economy. And we've kind of lapsed into managed trade and nobody's prodding the agenda, which leaves the field open to either sort of chaos or others forming the agenda. Yeah, it's a great point, Bob. You know, if you look at some of the political stuff that you hear from Democrats, one of the talking points is, look, we're going to talk more to our allies. That's going to be a huge part of our approach to global politics. But it's almost given as a throwaway line. They don't realize that when you talk to them, that sometimes they talk back and they have views. One of the first things that we're going to hear about is what is our trade policy? What's your strategy? And that's going to be tough. I completely agree. paper, it's digital taxes with Europe, right? So how are you going to avoid that with your new European alliance partner? And also your oh, makeup. This is great. I, I do want to... I do want to ask about, I want to get back to the book a little bit more. Okay. So, you know, it's, uh, Gloria Steinem has this wonderful quote. She said, you know, I, I do not like to write, but I like to have written. I want to ask you about the writing of the book. Did you enjoy the process? Did you find it to be unwelcome? Did you look forward to getting back to the desk, getting away from other daily pursuits? Did it feel like a anchor on your neck? Or, you know, was this something that you thought, God, I'm really glad about? That's the first question. And then kind of related to that, I always found when I wrote that there were often, there were things that I knew how it would go and how how I would write it and what I believed. But occasionally, after digging deeper into a topic, I learned different things and it forced me to change or alter my perspective on a particular uh, occurrence historically. And so I'm interested in both questions. Like, how did you find the process? Uh, would you recommend it to those who haven't? And and secondly, like when you look back on the parts of the book, now that you've concluded, what surprised you? What what did it turn out differently than you anticipated? So it, it was a lot of work, but it was a satisfying work. And part of the challenge was one you didn't mention specifically, but I'm trying to cover 200 plus years. So part of it was the selection. I needed certain people, different regions of the world, types of diplomacy, you know, and and so there's some that fell by the wayside. I would have liked to have done the Mexican war where Nicholas Trist basically breaks with his president and negotiates an agreement. There are some areas that frankly have been covered well recently, and I didn't think I could add much to them. So that was one challenge. Then second, on on the pure writing you know, I think everybody has to come up with their own method here. And I, I had the help of Daniel Chardell, who's uh, uh, going to be a very promising historian in his own right uh, up at Harvard. He helped me with some of the research sources. Because of my work, I knew a lot of the topics quite well already. But, but then, of course, I'm relying on the work of many other historians. So as I try to announce, I'm not a true scholarly historian. I, the, the notes are about 50 pages long, so you'll see for people yeah. who are in that. And then you try to get into the primary sources at various points. Um, but you get into a rhythm about the writing. And as you know, the real challenge, of course, is the editing, you know, cutting it back. You, you learn different things like verbs are actually important. And uh, American, English has lots of fine choices of verbs as opposed to adjectives, you know. So there's certain 
traits that you learn. As for the kind of the, the insights, um, in particular incidents, as I tried to make my own diplomatic assessment, you know, was Jefferson lucky or good with the Louisiana Purchase? You know, then I kind of approached it as you and I would as a policymaker. I think one of the toughest ones for me was that I originally wasn't going to deal with Vietnam, but my faculty seminar at Harvard said you have to. And that, of course, has been well researched and written, particularly by Fred Logoval. But I focused on this uh, late 1964, early 65 period of decision to really kind of have America take over the war militarily. And here, more than most chapters, from the start, I applied kind of my policy lens and I identified six factors to try to say, you know, what, what went wrong? What could we have done differently? And on reflection, those six factors would actually be kind of useful with issues like Iraq, too, or perhaps as we think about uh, uh, China today. Yeah, and then, of course, there's certain people that I wanted, I knew were interesting, like Charles Evans Hughes and Ella Harut, but I, I hadn't really researched closely. And I was delighted to bring some of these people back from the mists of history because they're one, they were wonderful thinkers and doers and often had a good sense of humor. So, Bob, I, you know, when I have looked at this, the book reminded me a little bit, just I remember as an undergraduate, the guy that really influenced me in my diplomatic history was a Yale historian named Samuel Flagg Bemis. Yeah. And you have, you have elements of his approach in your book more generally. So as you, you know, now go out and promote it, when you write a book, you know its strengths. You also know the areas that you're more vulnerable about. You, you, you're not always certain that you're going to be able to, you know, explain it or uh, defend it. Having completed this book, are there elements of the book that you still kind of wonder, gosh, did I, did I, did I make this case? Uh, am I going to be taken on in this arena more generally? I haven't encountered too much of that yet, but, you know, I've, I've, I've had a few academic reviews, which have been, been fine. So I haven't encountered that so much. The areas I think that are the challenge are, one, I stopped with President Bush 41. And a lot of people wanted me to go beyond. Now, I did it again. My seminar said you can't stop there. So I did an afterward yeah. on Clinton, Bush 43, Obama, and a, and a bit on Trump. I would probably have sold more books if I had Trump in the title and made it Trump. But I just didn't want to get totally focused on sort of today's issues. I wanted a longer time span. And secondly, I hope you would appreciate this. You know, if I comment on the more, some more recent periods, it gets into still what are sort of perhaps the partisanship. You need the history to settle a little bit. What I found quite interesting, actually, is when you pull back from the Bush 41, Clinton, Bush 43, there, there's actually a lot of continuity in a lot of the structure of their policy. And I, I use a little anecdote, a personal anecdote I had with President Obama to show that I think in some ways Obama's a little bit of the turn in terms of sort of America's sort of leadership in the world, in part reflecting his own style in the global financial crisis. He's, he's a bit of a reserve and diffidence. And then obviously Trump is a very sharp break. So there's kind of that perception uh, in the process. The other one that I knew would be a vulnerability was that because I sort of ended the prime chapters with sort of 1990, I didn't have a leading woman figure. So I consciously tried to, I brought in authors because they were, he at the time, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Pearl Buck, I 
let a lot of people know about someone they didn't know, probably Berta von Suter, who's the first woman yeah. who wins the Nobel Peace Prize. And I tried to draw on women scholars, but I knew that would be kind of a, you know, a challenge given the time period that I was dealing with. So, Bob, it, it, you know, one of the favorite parlor games for those of us who think a lot about foreign policy, national security is to look back, not just the modern era, more, but more generally, uh, those people that were the most intrepid, most effective. And I like the way you put it, you know, to be really good on the international stage, frankly, requires a combination of being not only good, but lucky. You've got to have a little bit of both. It's very hard to do one without without the other. And, you know, I, I'm curious, as you look back, you've got many case studies. Who particularly strikes you as someone that you're, you know, I, I'm good friends with, like you, we were talking about Bill Burns before we came in. He has a wonderful book that we reviewed, Rich and I, a couple of months back. And it's pretty clear as he goes through his own career, he has good words for many secretaries of state, but I think he has a fond spot for Secretary Baker. Not only was he young and impressionable, but you know he had an opportunity to work with people like you. As you look back, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but who strikes you as either someone that's extraordinarily well-known already that just you were reinforced in your appreciation of, or someone who perhaps was less well-known, less remarked upon, who also had an effective experience globally? Well, uh, like those who enjoy musicals, you, you can't ignore Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton's mm -hmm. brilliance. And what I try to draw in that chapter is not just his economic skill, but how he linked it to a diplomacy. Lincoln, no matter how you look at the man, I mean, most the, that chapter focuses on what very few books on the Civil War do focus on, which what was the foreign policy of the Civil War to stop mm -hmm. kind of foreign intervention. Seward, I draw out, and here I draw on some work that Michael Green is with his set of history. Seward actually had quite a strategic view about sort of America's place in the, in the world, which he tried to pursue along with buying Greenland, Iceland, and British Columbia <laughs> late in the period. But I find that I was drawn in particular to Charles Evans Hughes. In part, maybe there's some similarities today. There was a great sense of disillusionment after, after World War I. There was a cutback in budgets, and he First, as a diplomat, he creates his own momentum to make this naval arms control conference work. And he, he connects the arms control with the, the regional agenda. And he's doing it with a president, Harding, who's not one of the leading lights of American presidential history. But as a, as a secretary of state, he knows, as you know, the importance of the secretary of state in that close relationship. Um, Elihu Root was a similar uh, sort of figure. I use him to focus more on the international law tradition. In the, the great alliance launch, I, I bring back to life a man named Will Clayton, who I think is sort of, Kennan has overshadowed him because Kennan writes beautifully and historians like beautiful writing. Clayton was a very practical man, and in some ways you can see the signs of his influence being greater. In the case of the Baker-Bush, obviously I work with Baker, that is a very unusual presidential secretary of state relationship. And what I partly try to draw it on that chapter, I mean, is how that worked and how they how they complemented each other. Probably not since Jefferson and Madison have you had such a partnership. But to be honest, Kurt, you're not going to find that very often. I mean, because that's the serendipity of personal history. Bob, that's that's terrific. I do want to just last couple of questions. So you talked about the relationship between Baker and Bush. 
But it's always struck me that it's really a complicated three-way relationship between Baker, Bush, and Scowcroft. And I wonder if that, I mean, over time, it appears to me at least that the relationship between Scowcroft and Bush got somewhat closer and that the relationship between Baker and Bush was a little bit more complicated, where it was clear that Scowcroft worked for Bush, but Baker was obviously loyal and supportive of President Bush, but had some independent stature. Just as your closing remarks, help us understand, you were present at the creation of that relationship. How would you describe it? I think historians will increasingly focus on the Bush-Baker relationship. I know Phil Zellico has worked on this as, if you talk to people on the NSC staff from that time period, they will. What, and people often refer to kind of Brent as the NSC advisor that ran a neutral process. Brent was very opinionated. And, and so, but what's different is he allowed others to also bring in their opinions. What I think peop, what historians will find is that, of course, it starts with Bush. He's the president. And what they don't quite recognize is here's a man who is a true gentleman, one of the few that actually have in those posts uh, <laughs> as president. And he is prudent and he's careful, but he's fiercely competitive. And you can't understand Bush without knowing he's competing with Gorbachev. He's competing with others. He's competing in a different way. He and Baker, remember, build their relationship on the tennis court. They're both fiercely competitive guys. And in their practical way, what you see time and time again is that Baker recognizes that Bush doesn't want to just be stand pat. And Baker is the action officer. So the biggest one is, of course, you know, in the early 89 period, Brent and Cheney and others were probably more reserved. Bob Gates was more reserved on the Soviet Union. You know, Baker is pushing the agenda very quickly from the start. And Bush doesn't want to be caught on his back heels in this sort of process. Yeah, There's no doubt there's a complication in that in some ways you've got an older and younger sort of brother sort of relationship. But I think when you actually... And Brent, I think, was very important working with the Defense Department on some of the arms control initiatives, pushing the Defense Department. But, you know, one of the things that I think historians, for example, have almost bypassed was the critical role of this Conventional Forces Initiative in May of 89 that really resets the European sort of policy landscape in which, you know, Admiral Crow actually later takes it out on Bush and joins the Clinton team. Um, So, so... uh, that's my guess, uh, but it doesn't take away. And I guess one other point, which I hope would be important for the future, this group managed to disagree without losing their friendship. And I think that's an important lesson because if, as I've watched, you know, the current administration, everybody's at everybody's throats. But, you know, even in many other cases, you still need to function together as a team. Bob, this has just been absolutely terrific. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, We really appreciate you spending time with Tea Leaves. I do want to remind all of our listeners, you got a taste of it today. I want you to go out and purchase just to be reminded of what the United States has done in the world and what we might still do. America in the World, a History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. It's tremendous. It will give you a sense of the grandeur of American foreign policy, not just now, but over a longer period of time. And it will remind you of some of the challenges that we've faced before in the past. So Bob, thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to follow and rate us on Spotify, 
iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. I'd also like to mention that you can access the full video of this recorded conversation with Bob and Line. You can see how handsome both of us are. It's on our website, theasiagroup.com. So stay safe and healthy, wear your masks, and we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Kurt.